Today's episode is sponsored by one of my favorite brands in the world, Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. I have been drinking bone broth for a really long time now. And as you've seen, sometimes on my story, I will replace coffee with bone broth. And I know that sounds really crazy to a lot of you guys because you can't get your day started without that cup of joe. But let me give you something else to try. Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. It comes in all kinds of sippable flavors. It's non-GMO. They're made with grass-fed bones. It's so incredibly healthy for you. And not only that, it's really good for your hair and your skin and your nails, and it's great for gut health. I mean, really, it's basically a miracle, heavenly, delicious thing that you can have in the morning that's good for you and good for your soul, and it tastes even better. And you know what else is great? If you use the promo code WILDLOVE, you get 10% off, and um, you can join me in this. And I'm going to be drinking bone broth, by the way, for the next three weeks. So join me. Let's see how we feel, and let's do this. Much love, guys. You guys have heard me talk about this before, but it's because I absolutely love these sex toys. Sweet Vibe toys are my favorite. Now, they're all under $50. They come in really bright, fun colors. And I really haven't found something that just, you know, gets my O. (laughs) So I hope you guys check them out. It's sweetvibe.toysonline. And if you want to have your own O, use our promo code, which is WILDLOVE. Have some fun. On this episode of True Sex and Wild Love, we sit down with Vanessa Gregoriatis. She's the author of the book, Blurred Lines, and it's all about consent. How do you get consent? What is consent? How do you make consent sexy? And she's also written deeply about the sex cult Nexus and the Olympic gymnast scandal involving Larry Nesser and the sexual abuse that was happening there. This is a really interesting podcast. You learn a lot in it. I hope you guys enjoy. Here we are in the studio. Back at Gotham Podcast Studio. Here we are back at Gotham with Vanessa Gregoriatis, the award-winning writer for the New York Times, Vanity Fair. She has broken some amazing stories and written so much about sex, power, gender, sexuality. You are so flattering. Coercion. You are gorgeous and also flattering. Oh my gosh. So I know (laughs) Vanessa from New York City, from being a female writer in New York. We're all kind of a clique, right? We all kind of know each other. Absolutely. And Vanessa is the mother of a beautiful little girl named Olympia. Mm-hmm. Ooh, good and, name. Thank right, you. It's the Greek side coming out. The Greek side yeah. coming out. And we need to get your daughter together with my nephews. I have Achilles and Theseus. No way. Are you Greek? Nope. Oh, you just think that they have to be the kind of kids who can't hang out at the 7-Eleven. Like, they got to be like, you got to have so. goals in life. Right. Have, have <laughs> Live up to your name. name. <laughs> yeah. That's really good. I didn't know that about your nephews. Yes. Yeah, we need a play date. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that would happen. be really funny. Yeah. All right. So the most amazing thing about you lately, among so many things, you – uh, wrote this incredible story uh, in spring of spring of 2018 was really big for you. You wrote the story about the sex cult Nexium, mm-hmm. um, and then you wrote a story about another sex cult, basically, which is women's gymnastics in the United right. States. And you really laid bare not just what one coach had done, but a sort of systemic problem mm-hmm. in this sport about the script of femininity and and performance and and yeah. then just at the same time your book consent uh sorry your book blurred lines mm-hmm. came out in paperback 
Then. They're kind of they kind of mean the same thing, right? Consent and blurred lines. In some ways, you could say right. synonyms. Right. <laughs> we can get into that, and if that's true or not. Yeah, we uh, should talk about that. Yeah, one is supposed. To, there are two. You know, phrases are supposed to be so clear, and yet everybody has a different way of everybody. looking at them. And people don't really know what consent is mm-hmm. sometimes, and they're curious about it, and they think it's going to be a bummer or that it's punitive. Can you just? Give us a working definition of consent culture. What is this moment we're in? What's going on? I mean, I think I wasn't as clear as I could have been before. I think my general take is that there are a lot of very blurred lines and what's happening now, particularly among young people, is like putting a lot of bright, clear lines on everything that has to do with consent. I just don't know. There's a lot of talk and theoretics about it. I don't know if it's really true. You know, should you ask before you go down on someone? Should you ask before you kiss someone? Does it have to be verbal? Does it have to be just like kind of, okay, if I'm taking my own shirt off, then the other partner can assume that there's consent? Like, how do we define this for an entire nation full of all sorts of different people with different sexual needs and desires and wants and motivations and and histories of abuse, which a lot of people have. And mm-hmm. so, um, and then, of course, everybody thinks it's also hot to have the zipless fuck. It's hot to have the thing that doesn't have any consent in it. But when does it shade into rape? You know, like, these are the heaviest questions that are around, I think, for relationships, really. And they're ones that have really, like, been percolating in the back of everybody's minds as we go through this time where, you know, Me Too comes to the fore and, like, people are saying Kavanaugh should be impeached over, like, pulling his dick out at a college party maybe two times, you know, like, half the country's like, why would you even impeach the guy over that? You know, and there's even part of me that's like, you know, a little kind of truth and reconciliation commission about it, where I kind of feel like we've changed a lot of these standards, but we don't have to go back and kill everybody who didn't live up to the standards. Mm-hmm. Although Kavanaugh, I would love to have go because I think he <laughs> might kill Roe v. Wade. So right, it would be it might like be efficient. terrible. Yeah. I mean, it would be really ironic if the guy who was kind of an like a semi-abuser, like a grave rapist, then ended up being the one, the one who to took away. Gravely. Yeah. They took I away mean, women's please, right to choose. You know. So, I mean, I'm interested in all of those questions. I just think that they're they're hard. I don't know. What do you how do you define it? See, for me, it's something that's that's challenging for me. It gives me anxiety just thinking about it when you're like, should you kiss before this? Or if I'm taking my shirt off, then what does that mean? Um, I more so think of it like in a sexual thing. If we're already hooking up, then what is okay and what's not okay? Like, particularly mm-hmm. if it's like BDSM, if whips are coming out, how hard do you want to be hit? Is it is that too hard? Do you want it softer? Like, I like consent there for sure. Um, I've had absolutely no issues with it. So it's still a new territory for me. And I'm just now getting back into like the dating scene. So I think it's a really good conversation to have. For so many people. Okay. I have, I have been married for 19 years, so nobody needs to pay any attention to what I have to say about this. But here, (laughs) here would be a rule of thumb for me. Get my consent before you put anything inside of me. How about that? How about the very, at the very, you know, just the very beginning thing. It just seems like very clear that anything that's going to happen to your body, it makes sense that you ask about it first. And, and I how think, do you think you would ask about that? Like for people who are 
interested in knowing how to do mm, it without it being ruining the moment or not making it sexy or whatever people say. What if you could just say as you start to fool around, don't, no, I'm just imagining. No biting. Don't put anything in me without asking. I mean, yeah, right? I think it could be kind of sexy. Yeah. And- I mean, I think a lot of people say like, if somebody says, should I get a condom? Like that's basically a way of saying, are we going to have sex, right? right? That's right. like a point at which a woman, generally the woman is the one who's being asked, can say like, you shouldn't because we're, we're not, not going fucking. to have sex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think some people think that because, look, here's the idea that we're working with. The old idea that we're we're working with is, if we're talking about heterosexuals right now, but we don't have to. But generally, the old idea, if a woman is in bed with the guy, that means she has perforce consented. And right. what's happening now is we're slicing that up into tinier moments, right? Right, exactly. And saying, well, not really. Right. Maybe, you know, do you need permission for this? Do I consent to this right. or not? Okay, so we're having like a house. How serious is the cultural confusion? And tell people how you I think there's a lot of cultural confusion. I think it's mostly among, like, millennials and kids in college where there's been this whole, like, upsurge of the Obama administration saying everybody in college should get consent because we want to have these, you know, kind of sex crimes Mm -hmm. tribunals and all these crazy, like, policy things that happened in college that then trickle down to kids just having normal sex lives where they're like, oh, shit, every place I go, it says consent. I go to the bathroom. It tells me like this is, you know, you must get consent Mm -hmm. or you're going to get thrown out of school or whatever. So it's all kind of they're thinking about all of that in the more liberal places. Certainly like guys and girls are talking about it as a cool thing. Like this is something that would be cool to do. Like you should be asking. It should be verbal. If you go to like a Brown or a Wesleyan or a Reed, like mm-hmm. that's definitely the standard. That's is part that of the, the culture. Standard, you know, at UT Austin, I'm not really sure. Like yeah. I, I think it does kind of break down on political lines and people don't want to say that because then it sounds like, oh, this is just a PC thing and this is more of a thing about civility or it's about, you know, being a good, you know, sexual partner or healthy sexuality. But the fact is, is like these ideas are more common around among progressive people who are more into like, you know, gender, gender fluidity equality. and equality and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I mean, I think the bed thing is a really good metaphor, like example, because like when I wrote about it, I thought like my mom would never, who's like 70-ish, you know, would never have gone love to her. somebody love yes, Vanessa's Wednesday. Mom. I love her. And I have been out to dinner with my mom. And she is a uh, wonderful person. <laughs> she's an artist. She's the person who would give birth to this powerhouse. Oh, well, you know, Go thank on. you. And I instead, mean- I say thank you. But basically like if she, you know, let's say 1960s, she would not have gone up to a guy's apartment Unless she was planning to have sex with him, you're right? Yes. And, and if she had, I in like you know 1990s wouldn't have gone to in. A, I would have gone to the guy's apartment, but I wouldn't have gotten into bed with him unless I thought I was going to fool around with him. Maybe not fully to sex, but I would have. I, anytime I got into a bed with somebody in college, I was like, something is either going to go down, or I am okay with it. If it does go down or I want it to go down, I'm not sure right. if it will, but that's why I'm here. So just whatever. Yeah, that just was on the table. Being in the bed you know? was basically permission. Right, exactly. And now, like college, it's all about like the cuddling and the platonic, somewhat, you know, semi platonic friendship. And, you know, we were studying, so he slept over and mm-hmm, da 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 da. Yeah. 
at least I give lip service to that, whether that's actually true or not, that they're not in the back of their heads like, am I going to hook up with this person? Um, That's what they say. And so they want more boundaries around that. For me, I'm like, if I'm not going to have sex with that person, and I think I'm pretty sure, I'll be like, hey, by the way, I'm just not going to have sex with you. And then have a dad. Whatever right. happens, happens. If something changes and I say that I'm like, okay, take it back. I wanna I wanna have sex with you now. Okay. But if I really don't believe that I want to in that moment, like I just let them know. Right. Like, and if you does that mean if that means you don't want to hook up with me again, like now going forward, get the fuck out of here. Right. So ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Just the clear, like, I don't want to. Yeah. Rather yeah. than Right. There's something to be said for that and for getting yourself to the place where you feel entitled to say it, which I think a lot of women still don't feel entitled for me, to say that. it's more awkward if I don't because then you're like constantly thinking, should we do this? I don't know. What, should I? Maybe? Does he think he – does he want to? What? Where's the condoms at? I don't know. <laughs> right, you know, like this right. whole and dialogue he thinks he has to like keep turning you on to the point that you'll say right. yes, which is like kind of messed up. Although even if you say that, then people will still try to push you to yes. You know? I'm, yeah. Uh, Maybe because I'm yes. just a yeah. little bit like – I am literally not going to have sex with you. Like, I'm a pretty direct person, and I feel like that comes off that way. So right. I haven't when – I, when I have said that, it's been respected, thankfully. So thank thankfully. you. Thankfully. I mean, I think a lot of issues happen around drug and alcohol use, right? Mm-hmm. Can you consent when you're – I mean, so right. t- talk to us about – Or did first, you drink away your consent? Did you drink question. away your consent? You know. Wow, is that even possible? Okay, I did you – tell us how you wrote the book for our listeners who don't know because the way you did Blurred Lines to me is pretty amazing. Yeah. And tell us the subtitle. So, okay, so it's Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. So basically – Basically, I decided it was 20 years since I graduated college and I decided to go back to college. Where did you go to college? I went to Wesleyan, which is like a tiny little super PC school in in Connecticut um, full of like smart weirdos. And so I decided to (laughs) go back there. That was actually the easiest part of the book because I was like, I'm just going to put on my backpack. Literally, all I had to do was drive up to the school, park my car take a backpack and start walking around on the campus. And I was like, oh my God, it's like a time travel machine. Like I just went back (laughs) to myself and I was like, hey guys, what's up? And everybody was like, hey, who are you? And I was like, I'm a writer, da 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 And they're like, oh, you don't go to school here? Are you like a grad student? And I was like, no, bitches. I fucking was born like the year, <laughs> like 20 years before you guys. Like you guys were born the year that I graduated from here. And you I'm here again? to learn about your sex life yeah, exactly. and power and desire. And so like I hung out with them and went out with them and they were awesome. And I really loved them. I mean, there were some of them that I thought were kind of ridiculous. And there were some that I like genuinely really bonded with. And I listened to all of their, you know, hopes, dreams, and desires around sex. And, like, things changed a lot, but they also didn't change as much as you think. Like, the the big issues, you know, when I was in school, which was, like, the 90s, you know, was was Take Back the Night, right? That was our thing. Oh, that was the thing. Take Back the Night? Yeah. Take, you don't know about yeah. this? It's like oh what, all the, you know, different, like, sororities and everybody else would get together. All the women would get together, like, one night out of the year and march through the campus, like, banging pots and pans and say, we're taking back the night. And the idea was, like, 
you know, we're taking back all these public spaces where we could potentially get raped. We could be assaulted here and we're going to just go there. And then there'd be some sort of like, you know, stop at the microphone and everybody would like tell their stories Mm -hmm. of like this thing happened to me. They were very powerful. Very, very powerful. Very powerful. But then, you know, when I went back, it was like, okay, well, we don't want just one night. Like this isn't just about one night and it's not about the parking lot. It's about like what happened in the hookup with this guy Mm -hmm. at the frat the other night. And also, interestingly, like, we didn't let guys speak at any of those rallies. That right. Was a, it was just a women's It was thing. a women's only space. And then sometimes, like, I was in Ann Arbor where there was a huge national, like, um, epic mm-hmm. Take Back the Night rally yearly. And there was also a big, really big one at Berkeley. They, some of these were huge, right? And there would always be a clash and a discussion around why men were not invited right. to the march. And so it was a— it was a thing that started – it was an event, but it was also a conversation. So right. go on. Yeah. So basically, like, you know, the idea that a gay man could be assaulted was not, like, as much in the consciousness, you know, back then. So basically, I went I went around. And then, you know, the whole question of, like, then there would be women who were, like, lesbians who would talk to me about being, like, assaulted by their partner. Like, what does it mean to, like, have a woman assault a woman? Or even, like – even something with Harvey Weinstein, when you think about it, like there's still a lot of people who are like, did he really assault these girls? Because they all like he went down on them, basically. Like, did they agree to that? Well, you know, he pressured them. But you can still talk to guys who will be like, I don't I mean, I'm not saying that most people think Harvey Weinstein is innocent. I'm just saying I have had some conversations with guys where they're like, is that assault? Like, can you actually assault one of them? I'm like, yeah, you can fucking hold somebody down. It's not that hard. Yeah. You know what I mean? People, I mean, I think you were getting at something so important with this book, which is that people don't know. Right. And there's, you said earlier, there's sort of, there's, there are cultural differences between states and cities and towns and schools. And also they're like, what are the working definitions? You, right. you got into all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. I mean, I can't believe we're still sitting here like talking about this because it's been going on for like the last four or five years, right? The whole conversation about maybe Me Too was like two or three years ago, but like the broader consent conversation has definitely been percolating. But people don't have answers and we you can't change people's minds, I don't think, about what they believe to be like permissible sex that easily. Something like BDSM where they're actual kind of rules or whatever, or at least you might want to follow these rules. Like there's no class in school. I mean, they're starting to be in California now. They're getting into like consent education, but you know, there's no class in most schools. It's like how to put a condom on a banana. It's not like this is what is okay. Or even like when you're sending a girl 200 texts and she's not texting you back, like that's shading into something that's like stalkery. Right. Like it's just, they don't teach kids yeah, that. Don't do that. Yeah. Right. Don't do that. And like they are, they just don't teach <laughs> and kids And women anything. don't do that to men either. Right. Nobody or should be doing that. Just don't do it. Just stop. Take no for an answer. <laughs> Everybody should just like be confident enough to take no for an answer. There's a lot of fish in the sea. Just like, you know, but when you're like 13, it feels like life or death. I know, but even, like, when you're, like, even now, there's, like, life or death if you don't respond to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It can, 
And you know, <laughs> I'm so glad I am not single in this because I might as well am married. And I'm just like, I'm so glad. Like basically the like online dating thing started as soon as I got married, like the same year. So I've never oh, had to do online dating. Right. I've never had to be like, oh my God, is he texting me back? Is he texting me back? Like I'm still you, like, you were spared. Is there somebody all that. on my voicemail machine? With the tape in With the tape Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was calling you in. <laughs> Calling yeah. into your, your voicemail machine and seeing if there's a message. Yeah, that seems like a mess. Okay. I would be on the phone all the time. I'm so excited about it. About, really? like about it? dating apps and about yeah, just the whole. I mean, tech. I was in a, a seven year relationship from 22 to 30 that I just recently got out of. So, I, yeah, I'm fucking pumped. Wow. But Hit me is up. it weird to like go out with guys <laughs> that you have, like, it must be such a letdown most of the time. Like, you're texting with people and then you show up and you're like, you? Isn't it weird? Yeah, see, I've never, like, not met somebody. Plus, it's, like, you're on Instagram and, like, you're going right, you're through all this. You're like, seeing, seeing, seeing who they are. Yeah, yeah. So you're like, saying there are no line. big surprises. At least for me, there's no big surprises. Well, you can do a pretty deep dive probably. Right. Right? If somebody's on a dating it's app. It's true. How, yeah. Yeah, now you can. I mean, Instagram is just like an x-ray. You can really tell a lot about somebody by looking I'm at I'm pretty picky, Instagram. too. So like, you're screaming. automatically, if there's something that I don't like, it's just like, mm, done. Nope, not going to do it. I have better things to do. Priorities. Priorities. Yeah. All right, we, My time is valuable. I get it. Um, I want to get into some stuff about you. Okay. You, the writer and the thinker, because a lot. I think a lot of our listeners are trying to figure out, what am I doing? Am I doing what I really want to do, um, what I'm really enthused about? Do I, do I have the nerve to do the thing that really lights up my brain and gets me going? That might actually yeah. – Set other people like yeah, and so also kill you because and you have to work so hard. Right, but, Wednesday and I know about uh, writing books, which is the worst. It's the worst. But wait, yeah. I want to know. Let's look at you. You look at the things that you've written. You uh, wrote okay. First, she wrote this very cool piece. The way I learned about her, I think it was in 1998 that you wrote a piece about publicists in New York City. Oh, and what were right. they called? Yeah, the, the Power Girls. The Power right. Girls. Yeah, yeah, she yeah, found yeah. this group of powerful, glamorous female publicists and wrote this thing about them. It Got optioned. She was like a real. It was very silly. That. It was like a very. It that was, was like, for it had New York like magazine, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, but you write about you sort of write about groups, weird groups, and power and gender. To yeah. me, you have a very anthropological take on everything that you go into. Okay, just where did these fascinations come from? Oh, my God. Well, my mother, as we were talking about, is a feminist artist. So I think that I grew up in a very weird way that most people can't relate to, which is like in, you know, in the 70s when I was whatever, in the, I guess, early 80s, even when I was like little, I would go to Soho and I would go see like the most political art that you can imagine. And it was all about women being strong and like the patriarchy and blah, blah, blah. And I just grew up like with this idea, like I never thought to myself that a woman couldn't do what a man could do. I always, I was never asked, when are you going to get married? Never asked, when are you going to have kids? Never. Wow, my entire really life. And actually when I was like in just my 30s and I was trying no, to get know. pregnant, I was like, did anybody want to tell me that it's like kind of hard to get pregnant <laughs> later? Like maybe I could have gotten that message somewhere along the line. I was like, this went a little too far. And so, and then I went to, as we just discussed, this very liberal college and kind of came out of college at 22 and went, holy shit, like there's a whole landscape of womendom and femaledom that like I didn't know anything 
even existed. And I can't understand, like, I think a lot of my project has been like how like human project or writing project has been like trying to understand, like, how do women use their sexuality both for good and for evil? And in what ways Ooh, is like just, women's power so good. tied to their sexuality? And how, how do you, do you need to incorporate it? You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason that Nancy Pelosi is the most important woman in America. And it's because she's old and she looks great because of the surgery and all the money she has and blah, 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 blah. But she's not a sex object. She's she not, not sexualized. Not a sex object. Right. And if she was, she would have a very different public profile. And right. Trump would be a lot less scared of her. He's scared of her because she's like the untouchable. You know what I right. mean? Like she's beyond the bounds of his comprehension of what a woman can be. So I kind of think that that was the stuff that I was always playing with. And I also have like a real taste for the sensational and the flashy and all that. So I'm always like drawn to like the most scandalous story and the most like complicated, weird, like woman-centric. Yeah, I I mostly write about women. Okay, tell us about the next Nexium story. story. Okay, so this is the actress. This is like Alison Mack, the actress who was in the sex cult that was in Albany that everybody was talking about like a year ago. So I basically like ended up interviewing the leader Keith Rainier, Keith Rainier, at, in uh, in Mexico when he had absconded from the U.S. and run off to Mexico ahead of his federal indictment. And for I people was, like, who don't know about down this there, cult, I don't I mean, know much about it. I would it love was, to hear okay, it. it was such a coup. First of all, that Vanessa tracked this guy down and got him to talk to her. It was if, insane. If it was truly. If it, you're a writer, if you're an investigative journalist. Like you're bowing down that she did that. <laughs> okay, but well, tell truth us be told, he was trying to find somebody to talk to because he was like, "I need everybody to know I'm innocent," which he was not. But which he was not. In any case, yes. Tell that us about was the awesome. cult. Okay, so the cult is deep and dark and really uh, as messed up as any cult possibly could be outside of the ones that we all talk about, like Scientology or da 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 da. But basically, like this guy was kind of a nerd, grew up in Albany. You know, he's like probably about 60 now. He um, figured out a way of getting like very wealthy women to give him their money, his, their money, and also to be in like, uh, you know, you could call it a polyamorous relationship. I mean, they were having like relationships with him and then some of them were sleeping with each other and sometimes he would be there when they were sleeping with each other, but they never had relationships with other guys. And if they tried to, he would like freak out, you know what I mean? So basically he had this like overlaid outer shell that was just like the Landmark Forum or any other kind of consciousness-raising group that you find in San Diego. It's not exactly like the Landmark Forum. I'm not saying that. But it was like <laughs> that kind of, you know, that kind of just right. like, get you, feel feel yourself. Get yeah. yourself stop, stop limiting yourself. Don't limit yourself. It's Empowered. not about your story. And like, your thing was how he sold this woman a bill of goods, right? He told them that he was going to help them become empowered. But he basically made them over into his sexual ideal. He put them on very, he got them to agree to go on very strict diets, Diets, incredible calorie restrictions. Everybody was very skinny and blonde. A lot of these women had a lot of money. He took naked photos of people and said, I'm, and oh my God, had it gets like, it gets as dark everybody. as it can get. Like basically one of the things that they would do is like, you know, they would go jogging and everybody should be in a marathon and everybody was counting calories. And it was all about like the strength that comes through obedience and control 
to, you know, calorie counting or whatever. Everything had like a spin on it where it was like, no, 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 this is actually good for you, right? And then behind the scenes, he was having people sign like crazy contracts. Like, I will be your sex slave forever. I will give you, <laughs> like, like signing over the deed of your house to him. I just don't like, understand how this even happens. I don't know. That's the thing is, is that it's one of those things you kind of can't believe, but it's it's a process of groupthink and pure pressure. And it was like women pressuring each other. It was like a hierarchical structure of women. And this is the the cult that ended up with the scarring branding. of the branding of his initials basically on like everybody I talked to had a different word for it, which was something I found like really amusing was like some people were like, it's just a it was just like kind of like a tattoo on on those women's legs. And then other people were like, it's like a fucking brand on their pussies. And it was really like kind of bikini line, like almost in a little too close to uh-huh. your And it crotch. was his initials. And it was, they didn't know it was his initials. That's how deep and dark this gets. This like, gets they didn't know. They were like, how did they not oh, know? Getting branded. They told him it was like the chakras or something. And it was like some a symbol. fire. But really, it was his initials. Yeah. And I mean, there's a Lifetime movie about it. There's going to be like a million documentaries. There's a, we're going to be hearing about this. It's a very Manson. It's very Manson-esque. Like, but there were no drugs. My is mind so is crazy. just blown right now. It's like, a mind-blowing and story. And the thing is, this is... This is kind of to me the through line of your career. Like you really get dark it, it, it's really, really dark and salacious, <laughs> but also super deep because here you have these like rich, beautiful, thin, blonde women. Yeah. Are they really? And everybody would say, oh no, this is about empowerment. But and you can't say he wasn't tying them down, he right. wasn't forcing them there to was stay. A, yeah. But there was coercion. And right. you're sort of always pushing it like yeah. where there are was some lines? hardcore coercion there I have to say that like at first I was like maybe there's not coercion and then I was like oh no there definitely is like and there was some really dark stuff he did with some underage girls and all of that is there I mean it's very much like this Jeffrey Epstein story right like the, right. the story of the billionaire yeah. with all the I mean and then he com- supposedly commits so well, okay I think he committed suicide in the prison but I think the guards he was allowed to right yeah I don't think it was like the I don't mob. think they were just taking a nap they were not but- not just taking a nap and just happened to not Out have any lunch. videotape of it at the same time. How did we miss that? But in any case, there, yeah, I think, I mean, coercion is really interesting to me because I also am this person who just believes that I'm in control of everything. Like, I think I control everything. And if it doesn't happen the way that I want it to, it was somehow my fault. Like, I'm exactly that person. Right. So I think about that a lot. Like, to what point would you have to get where you're like, I'm a sex slave of this just disgusting man and giving him my house like that just is so bananas to me that's so <laughs> out of like the uh, like my and, and I think in terms of consent it's interesting because like our understanding of ourselves as strong women is all about like we are in control of our own destiny and also our sexuality but we all know where the rubber meets the road right that guys really control a lot of what goes down in the bedroom and trying to figure out how you fix that is fascinating you know because we don't even want to admit it to ourselves. We don't. We don't want to look at that, at how much, what seems like we're consenting to and driving. Mm-hmm. How? I mean, we could go so far with the metaphor and reality of coercion, right? right. In our day-to-day lives, what we put on, how we feel our bodies need to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really rich concept. Yeah. 
I mean, if you, if there were no men, I mean, it's kind of like Audre Lorde or somebody is yeah. like, you know, you can tell how much a man is, you can tell how much a woman is owned by a man by the way she walks, which I actually am like, I don't know, because I think I walk very daintily and I do not think I'm owned by men, but maybe I'm wrong. Like, that's kind of like, okay, are you like a butch dyke or something? And then you walk in a way that men don't own you. Okay, fine. That's not that interesting. But it is interesting to think about like, the way we dress, like how, you know, who are you dressing up for, mm-hmm. right? Like, and sometimes you're dressing for other women so they can see you. They want, you want them to think you're attractive. But then there's other times when you're very clearly dressing for men, you know, right. like maybe the more low cut it is or something. You could right. definitely say that was like a decision, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, what would it look like? What would we all look like? Would we have like all tons of body hair? Like how, what would we look if there were like, if there were no men on this planet? And we weren't trying to please them. What would that look yeah. like? Mm-hmm. I love that question. Yeah. All right. You went, what was it like to write the, um, I don't know which one came first, the Nexium piece. And then can you talk to us about the gymnastics piece yeah. and La- Larry well, okay, Nasser so the as gymnastics well? The piece with Larry Nasser was really, I mean, as I mean, I think the next scene piece was so disturbing because these were adult women and they made these choices and you can't understand how they made the choices. Whereas the Larry Nasser, you know, U.S. gymnastics story is like just a story of flagrant abuse of children and mm-hmm. the inability of the parents and the adults around those children to step in and stop it and the way they close their own eyes because they thought he was the best doctor and he was the Olympic doctor and the Olympics are a big deal and thereby he would never do anything wrong. So if this girl is complaining that he did something inappropriate, she just must not understand what it is to really be like stretched by an amazing Olympic doctor. And it's probably wrapped up in the fact that they really want their kids to go to the Olympics. Right. And they want their kids to go to the Olympics. So they're like, oh my God, we can never say, we could never, I mean, think about it. Like when you're in gymnastics, it's the same kind of thing as in Nexium, right? Like super calorie restricted, you're supposed to practice or whatever, I don't mm-hmm. know what they call it, practice, I guess, every day, yep. multiple hours a day. If you get hurt, you're not, you know, you may not even say anything because you don't want to be taken out of the next competition because right. God forbid, then you could get behind and you wouldn't reach your goals. I mean, weren't you a gymnast? Yeah. I mean, not in a serious way. I was like competed at a state level. I think I was second in the state on the balance (laughs) beam for a little time. But there was that idea that, and by the way, my gymnastics coach was a, the term is not pedophile, but he had affairs with girls on the gymnastics team. And guess what? We were just like, yeah, of course. I mean, I was surprised when I heard it, but I thought, yeah, well, so-and-so is She's 17 years old. Yeah, she's having an affair with our gymnastics coach. Yeah, that's like kind of a normal thing, right? And the gymnastics coach was like the transference that a female athlete has to her coach, especially a sport like gymnastics Mm -hmm. where you're just like bending your body in unbelievable ways, convincing yourself that you can do this, right? And to have a powerful older man be your sort of shaman and guide to your body. Wow, this is a weird situation and the transference is intense. Mm -hmm. But clearly, as a mom of an 18-year-old and a 12-year-old now, I look back at that and I think parents were outraged that this um, coach ended up 
having an affair, leaving the state um, with this young woman who was on our gymnastics team. She was a girl. Um, people were outraged, but today it would be very different. Right, for sure. I mean, that's a different, now we don't, I mean, when I went to high school, like teachers, we was like, oh my God, that teacher's going out with that girl. Like everybody thought it was funny, you yeah. know, like it was gossip. Now Yes, it, it was like, gossip. Five alarm fire, woo woo Right, right. Yeah. Wait, can we step back for one second? Just tell our listeners who might not know about it. They're just the big view of the gymnastic story. Larry so Nasser. So Larry Nasser was Larry Nasser was a um a gymnastics coach in Michigan and then he became the coach for the US Olympic team which he actually like kind of volunteered to do which is crazy but he used to go to the ranch in Texas where all of the gymnasts would go to practice. Like, you know, they would have to go there I think every 6 weeks or something like that. And that's when US gymnastics was getting incredibly like great and they were getting all these medals. They're kind such of like, amazing athletes. You, you know, do gymnastics there. too. You know, oh, it's like okay, brutal. So you know all about it. So it's like brutal you know, and Raisman and I mean all the only big imagine. big gymnasts were basically being assaulted by him at the ranch repeatedly. Repeatedly. Like I mean every time. Like every time he laid his, oh, his hands on them God. if unless he thought that, you know, somebody was coming in the room room or something. And even if he did, sometimes he just put a like, towel over them and he was just, I mean, look, if, I mean, this is disgusting, but people were like, he was basically fisting them. Like he was basically just like shoving his arm up there. And he had some idea that he believes to this day is true, which was that he was stretching their interior muscles in a way. And this is part of why they were so flexible and becoming so good. But Whoa. I mean, you know, I guess we'll find out, <laughs> you know, the entire USA gymnastics like bureaucracy has been dismantled now like four they or five times. They were so complicit. They were, they were these, totally These girls complicit. when they complained, because these girls and young women did try to complain, right? Right. They and they, particularly their, at yeah. the University of Michigan, where he was also uh, on the faculty, they was he were- at Michigan State he, too? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Michigan. At, at Michigan State, yeah. not at the University of Michigan. At Michigan State, he was on the faculty. He had a clinic. I mean, there were girls coming out. I mean, they, they traced it now. It's like every couple years, basically, until he started to be the Olympic doctor. Once he was the Olympic doctor, not that many people complained. But before that, for the 10 years, every couple of years, somebody would come up and a parent would say, look, I I, this is really weird, but like my 11 year old is saying this happened, you know, he had a massage table in his house that he would tell people to come to on the weekends. Like, I mean, this was as, this is like serious stuff here. Serious Where is sexual this guy? assault. Wait, oh, and he's in prison for the rest of his life. I mean, they, I, at least, I mean, that's, that's all, you know, you can really do at this point, but I mean, there's huge suits. <laughs> Each of these girls is going to end up with money, but you know what? They already had money. Like, is the, does money make that better? I don't really think so. How many so. of these gymnasts did you talk to, V? I mean, I talked to probably like a dozen. I, I focused mostly on the, you know, the famous ones, but there's, mm -hmm. there's endless ones also just in Michigan, like girls who just never made it. Right? Like who just were taking it, you know, who were on the club level, basically. Mm -hmm. Right? I sure right. hope prison is taking real good care of you, buddy. <laughs> Enjoy yourself, fucker. I would say that that is probably, yeah, that's what's happening. Did there. you go to a dark place when you wrote those two stories? What was that like for you? I was like, I did. I think I did. Between the book and the two, those two stories, <laughs> I, was like, I have now thought quite time. a bit about rape and I feel like I might need to stop thinking about rape. And I actually wrote a little bit about Jeffrey Epstein because I know people who like went out with him yeah. when they were you know 22 he was a fixture he, on the upper east side in a exactly. way i mean we kind of did yeah. you meet him nope i never met jeffrey epstein yeah but you would hear people knew all like, about going, him right yeah. everybody knew about this weird guy with the biggest townhouse in new york and um and i was just like you know what 
I think I went as far as I can. Like I write one story and then I was like, you know Mm -hmm. what? I don't really need to think about this Jeffrey Epstein situation. I've had like three years thinking about sexual abuse. What did you do? Sexual abuse. Yeah. What did you do after that? Like how did you? What was like the palate cleanser? I mean, I made this, I made this podcast about Ivanka Trump where I was just like, let's think about Ivanka Trump. Like she's a cartoon character. Okay. And just try to kind of unpack her. And like the reason I started doing that is because I found all these different guys were like, I went out with Ivanka Trump because she's about my age, grew up in New York, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God. They were like, she went out with everybody. She went out with everybody. And I was like, oh my God, I love it. Like, slutty Ivanka Trump, this is going to be the best podcast ever. And then when I went back and tried to like report it, I realized that they, a lot of them were kind of like, they, she had flirted with them at a party. Like, she's a big flirt and she makes you feel like the door is open, but the door, but actually her like good friends were like, no, she's like a boyfriend. She was like a boyfriend guy, girl. She was like a boyfriend girl. So you're getting, you're on this podcast, you're digging into Ivanka Trump as like a person and as a signifier. Yeah, exactly. And And like is, and in her her relationship with her dad, which is the most important thing about her. I mean, talk about consent and coercion. I know. Like, and the, I mean, the big takeaway is just that, like, he never really spent any time with her until, like, I mean, as disgusting as this is to say, when she went through puberty and she became, like, a beautiful she girl. She became interesting. Then she was more interesting to him. But before that, he, like, didn't give her the time of day, didn't, like, take care of her during the divorce from her mom. Like, that's all a bunch of BS, like, that she was the most favorite one. It's like, she's the most favorite one because the other two are, like, really messed up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, Don Jr., like, right. you don't get more messed up than that. Like, and, Yeah. He was in Aspen as, like, just hanging out, drinking a lot, like trying to get away from his dad, didn't want anything to do with his dad. Like, and now he's like his dad's surrogate and like the biggest MAGA bro there is. Like there's, it's a weird story. And what is the, like, talk a little bit about how he has deployed her in a way and they're in this do-si-do where she, I mean, for a while, I think that a lot of white women felt like Ivanka Trump was a a more uh, palatable version of him or that she would be the voice of reason and that she would talk back to him and push back. I mean, that seems pretty fantastical at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what people thought. I think that she was a fixture on the New York social scene. She was at all the like right parties, but also was friends with the cool people. Like, it's not like she was friends with like the gross, like kind of Republican, like super like straight group of people. She was a partier. She was in nightclubs. Like she was in the mix, right? As like another girl with a rich dad who wants to party in New York. Like that was her persona that I knew about. Sounds fun to me. In her 20s, it wasn't so bad. (laughs) Nobody had anything bad to say about her. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. she was, she was acceptable. And then she kind of met Jared Kushner and then she became more interested in being like a power couple. Then, you know, Jared had Mm -hmm. a ton of money and there was a lot more like dinner parties with important people. And people started to realize like, oh, she's becoming friends with all the hedge funders and all the Jewish philanthropists. And she was trying to get like a more kind of Jackie O-esque profile for herself. But nobody knew what her politics were. And she said she was a feminist. And she had the company that was like feminist. And like she gave money to Cory Booker, who's a Democrat. Like she was a person that people thought, like everybody just assumed she's another globalist. Like she's a liberal globalist. She is Mm -hmm. a neocon globalist. She's some sort of globalist. Like nobody thought she was you know, her dad's child in that way. And, but she's super strategic and she's a huge opportunist. And so once she realized that the path to like true power went through like MAGA, 
She mm-hmm. kind of was willing to go down that path because she now, I mean, she has every CEO, every head of state around the world on speed dial. Like she could do any deal she wants when she gets out of there. Maybe not Ivanka Trump shoes. Like maybe <laughs> Americans are not going to buy her shoes, mm-hmm. but like to run a real estate fund for some, you know, Arab prince, you know, and have billions and billions of dollars. I don't know. It's interesting to ask what she would do. Like there are people who think she wants political office and she might, she can't run from New York because people would not vote for her. Right. But of course she could domicile in Florida where they have Mar-a-Lago mm-hmm. and she could very easily run for a political office Senate or something like that and probably win Florida. You know, she mm-hmm. could win Florida. Um, she doesn't have the charisma of her dad. You know, she's not a crazy person. She doesn't have that wild energy. Right. But she has that, um, to your point, I think for Trump supporters, um, a lot of them see her in this aspirational way as like almost Jackie O.S. Right. And then they see her also as persecuted by the left, mm-hmm. right? So you think that she could win Florida. I think she could win Florida. I mean, I think she was first seen as like a globalist cook and she's married to the Jewish guy and like, you know, who is this person? Like, I think on the far right, there was a lot of hesitation about her. But now that she's been so toothless and hasn't done anything, I think that they're basically like, oh, great. Like, gorgeous, great, she's gorgeous girl mm-hmm. who, like, you know, will kowtow to any of our ideals. Like, doesn't sound so bad now, you know? Mm-hmm. I think she's, you know, I, how much is she a draw for Republican women? Like, we'll see. There are polls that have come out where she polls better than her dad in, like, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Like, these are really important states, you know? And then there's this whole question of if Trump will kick Pence to the curb because he doesn't need Pence to bring in the evangelical vote. I think that's very true. I don't think he's going to pick his daughter. I think everybody would freak out. But if Nikki Haley would do it, he would have her in a hot second. If he could get like a woman of substance to be his veep, I I, I think we're 50-50 that he kicks Pence out for sure. Like, there's no reason to keep Pence. I don't know. He's going to get impeached maybe. So like... <laughs> I know. Who <laughs> knows what five o'clock will bring today? Yeah, well, exactly. we know an announcement from Nancy Pelosi. It'll probably be dated by the time this runs. Right. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll know more by the time this runs. But like, what an interesting, amazing moment to have you here. Yeah, it's going to be quite the quite the thing. We'll what, see. So tell us before we have to let you go. We, I mean, you've been covering politics, gender, power. Where do you see us going in the next few years? What's your oh vision God. based on uh, based on your reporting? Well, no, on your... I think everybody's kind of on tender hooks because it's all about whether Trump wins or not. You know, like it's all about 2020. If he wins again, there's going to be a revolution in this country. And I don't think it's going to be really necessarily the women, though, if the Supreme Court goes down and like Roe v. Wade, like, you know, I'm not an alarmist. It is it is possible that Roe v. Wade really is going to oh, go no, down. That's, that's yeah. the end like, game that's of the serious, GOP. That's the know? end game of the GOP, right. to be clear. Exactly. So it's like if that happens, you know, there will be a female revolution. I think it's more like a young person's revolution and an immigrant revolution and a Latino revolution. Like I think all of those things are on the table. Like I don't know. I mean, is is California or the West going to try to like, you know, somehow break off? Secede? Like, I mean, we can't take like five more years of this and people are going to be afraid there's going to be like a nuclear war. And like, I mean, there's just the the incredible thing about his presidency is that we haven't been in a war yet. And once we are in a war, because it's inevitable, 
that's when like I think people are going to get genuinely afraid and there's going to be like assassination attempts and stuff, you know? We're <laughs> going? Yeah. Yeah, that's where we're going. But if he doesn't win, I think you could see like a big return to civility and, you know, certainly if a Warren would win or something, it would be, then maybe you would see a revolution on the right. But, you know, what's that going to be? They're already like shooting up all the schools. So like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that like, the revolution on the right is is already here in some ways. It would just get exponentially bigger. You know, I can't see it getting more ideologically uh, complex. Like, it's pretty complex. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird time to be. I mean, it really is like 1968 in America. Is it know? the weirdest time since you started reporting? I think so. It's the weirdest time since I've been alive, I think. I think so, too. Yeah. It's so think? crazy. It's just <laughs> like... Yeah. Well, it's a great time to be a reporter. I will have I will say that. Like yeah, despite the fact that media that. is falling apart, we're all losing our jobs. Like it is a damn good time to be a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> Trump has been very very good for journalists and journalism. <laughs> Don't get so me started. So many late night source dinners where you're just like this is so much more interesting than it used to be. Yeah. I was with a a, a, a quite a famous TV journalist, I won't name any names, who said at dinner after the election, um this person said Trump won. And this person said, and now it's all over. And what this journalist meant was like, all the fun of reporting on this crazy election is over. And we looked at this person (laughs) and said, it's just starting. (laughs) So much good material. (laughs) It's been a wild ride. Oh my God. Well, you're a really good guide through all of it. Thank you. Thank you for Thank bringing you so much your for lens. Having me. That Thanks was so for much being fun. here. Yeah, and just, really thanks for it. your work. Thanks for your point of view in the world, Vanessa. We need it. Keep Thank you. And keep yours on. As well. Keep on. I, I'm I'm going. I'm keeping. You guys, Vanessa Gregoriadis, <laughs> how can people find you? Uh, I'm Vanessa Gregor on Twitter, which is V-A-N-E-S-S-A. G is in George, R-I-G-O-R at whatever, Twitter. Whatever. Uh, or if you put in Vanessa Blurred Lines, my book would probably probably pops up. Okay, great. Everybody I read that. I'm really you, interested. You in have to read Blurred Lines. <laughs> Smartest thing anybody's written about consent and like the I feel like Antioch College started it and you right, made yeah, a really yeah. smart intervention. Thank You're you. like a counterpoint to it. Thank, thank you, you Vanessa. Thank you. Love you. Thanks for having. Thanks for coming. Such a fun episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. And if you did, please go on to iTunes and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Um, It really helps the success of the podcast and spreading this message. Much love, guys.